We've scaled from 16 apartments year one to 125 this year. 35 year history of planning refusals. Back into planning and get consent to use the entire building. 50 acres for about 120 million. What we're doing is we're putting two different offers in, subject to planning, we're putting an unconditional offer, which is obviously a lot less. Once you've bought a site, you can't unbuy it. So buying it at the right price is very, very important. Because you just got to know about planning and design inside out. And when I visited the actual garages, not only did I get on very well with her, but she lowered the price. Sorry, that is something we've, we've never heard. I'm probably yeah. never here on a podcast again. Welcome to the Real Developer Podcast, real conversations about all things land, planning and development. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode two of the new series of the Real Developer Podcast, now powered by the awesome Land Tech. My name is Alex Harrington-Griffin. I'm your host. And in this episode, we decided to get into a topic that a lot of real developers are discussing at the moment, namely the idea around the dreaded receivership. Not a light subject, but an important one to understand both sides of the coin, why it occurs, what's happening right now, and what to think about if you want to be on the receiving end of property in receivership. To co-host this session, I invited a real developer who is now entering his second year as an accredited real developer and has just completed his first purchase of a site from a receiver, Fahad Gandal of London-based FXCD, who actually appeared in series one episode five, which you'll find a link to in the show notes. Fahad formed FXCD with his wife, Catherine, in 2018, following a successful career in banking, and has now been involved in 10 residential projects around the south of the UK, boasting a strong eye for quality design teams and premium products. And in the hot seat today, talking all things receivership, a gentleman who was recommended to me by a long-term supporter of the Real Developer Programme, Julian Healy of Receivership Association NARA, a gentleman by the name of David Eden from Cushman and Wakefield. David is a charter surveyor and registered property receiver working in receivership and recovery solutions team at Cushman and Wakefield with previous senior positions at JLL and Deloitte. Last autumn, David provided a small group of real developers with a very clear insight into what's going on in the receivership world. So for us, it was a no-brainer to bring him into the podcast studio and give us a bit of a hand, understanding perspective on this timely, important, real conversation. We'll start this episode in one minute after a quick success story from Land Insight user and real developer Joshua Prince from Eastwood Developments. Yeah, we've used Land Insight now since 2016 and have identified thousands of potential acquisition opportunities. But one of the largest successes we've had was on a seven and a half acre industrial estate that we identified through Land Insight. We were able to get in contact with the owner and agree terms, but we quickly realized that we had issues in regards to the multiple accesses the site had and that they were all privately owned. Make sure you stick with us to the end of the episode to find out how Joshua got on after Eastwood found their target site with Land Insight. And on that note, Let's get on with the show. Hello, gents, and welcome to the Real Developer Podcast. Thank you for jumping into episode two. You've not graced this space before, but you have graced the Real Developer Podcast space before. And David, I think we have to give you a bit of commendation just because you were able to explain at a recent event to a group of developers what you do, which is complex in very, very simple terms. So there was no doubt in my mind we had to bring you back in and talk about this growingly active space of receivership, which 2023, I think we are probably going to see only more, more activity. Hopefully you can tell us a bit more about it. I think one of the things to start with before Fahad gets into the, the meat of the, of the uh, subject is just so our audience are clear, why do property, why does property and development sites end up with your team at Cushman's? 
It's a great question. It's, it's, it's probably the most pertinent question you could have asked. The most common breaches on a loan, common defaults on a loan would be around loan to value, payment default, whether that's interest or, or, or loan expiry, no repayment. I think obviously we speak more commonly about development sites, land, and those cases we see some of the more interesting payment defaults, well, sorry, defaults, you know, not hitting a planning hurdle or a section 106 agreement or certain targets on pre-lets, pre-sales. But, you know, most of the lenders we work with aren't hasty to enforce. Mm. They've generally gone through a bit of a process. They might have been speaking to someone like me for a period in advance as well. And they'll look to support their customers, but they'll come to a point where they feel that the only way that they can deliver on, on their job, which is getting their money back, is by the appointment of a receiver. That's probably changed quite a bit in the last, say, 10, 15 years, given previous um, episodes in the market uh, and maybe more hasty decisions. Is that fair to say? I think it depends on the lender base or your client base. Right. So I think we work I mean, broadly with two pools of, of lender. Your traditional lenders, so your big banks and insurers, which I think probably give a lot more leeway and are, you know, they are more covered by treating customers fairly and trying to really, really support long-term their, 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 their customer base. Some of the new entrants to the market since the GFC are quicker, I would say, to enforce, partly because they'll have their own strategies and their own you know, returns they need to hit. So they can't afford to leave things hanging if they, if they don't think they're going to be able to get paid the interest or, or get repaid the loan. And so some of those uh, entities will be a bit quicker. But they'll normally still, the first instance, will be a conversation with their customer. What's happening? How can we work with you? Okay, that's good to hear. David, so how, how has 2023 started and which sectors do you focus on? So 2023 for us started busy, started where we left off. I think three sectors of focus for us this year. Retail, we've got quite a big existing book of retail. I think we've got six, seven shopping centres that we're working on. They take a while to do the workout on, so we'll continue to work on those next year or two. Offices, which is something I know we've spoken about previously. We are going to refocus on a bit this year. I think the, the MES and you know, ESG agenda you know, into playing with changing working practices is going to put a lot of pressure on viability of secondary and tertiary office stock. You know, retail had its day of enforcement over the last couple of years because there was several years of structural change that, that built up to that. And I think we could be seeing the start of that in, in, in certain areas of the office sector. Some will be resilient, but some might be impacted. So that combined with the financing market is going to make refinancing even good quality office product a challenge could keep us busy and then residential development land again you know volume house builders are talking about falling sales rates um and whilst a, a large big brand company like that might be able to absorb that there will be smaller businesses that that'll be more of a struggle especially as their lending is more likely to be a bit more covenant heavy you know you've got to hit a certain sales rate or we're gonna enforce a loan i don't imagine barclay homes have to worry about that from their bankers it all sounds a bit somber out there. So where, where do you currently see the opportunities for SME developers in terms of buying good quality assets at decent prices, but also, as you just touched on, you know, potentially positioning for structural changes within the industry? So I think probably the second of those two sectors that, that I mentioned. So, you know, stalled residential developments, I think we'll see, we will see that this year. You know, that element of volatility provides opportunity for others. You know, you'll be able to step in, it's stepping into complete stalled residential developments, you know, recapitalizing companies, that kind of thing. You know, also on the offices, as we mentioned, there'll be people that are owning offices not to want to repurpose them and now be assessing their viability based on the, the requirements to upgrade the EPCs and 
various other ESG factors. Um, if you're positioned strongly in that market, you can do things at a, at a cost base or an efficiency or a level of expertise that resistant holders don't. That's got to create opportunity for you, for people that are now feeling like they're not well positioned to own that secondary or tertiary office and they don't feel maybe there's a, an easier exit to a residential or something like that. Can I just ask a quick question on that? Because we touched on this in our briefing call ahead of the podcast. And I suppose, you know, as someone whose family's involved in commercial property, you know, we've had a schedule recognizing when various dates and regulations are coming into play. Why do you feel that some owners, portfolio owners or individual assets, are kind of getting caught with that sudden capex spend? Appreciating build costs have gone up, appreciating the cost maybe finance those works or the ability to refinance has gone up or has changed, why is there still that surprise that sort of being caught at this late moment for some of those vendors, do you think? I think the scale by which people are getting caught out is to do with build costs, financing costs. But fundamentally, I think people, too many people took their eye off the ball on EPCs. We've been aware for a long time that this legislation was, was, was incoming. You know, everyone knows you need an EPC to sell a property, to let a property. So everyone yeah. knew what an EPC was. You know, when I was at Deloitte, I can remember we used to go in and, and, and try to talk to lenders and say, this is the problem to be aware of now because you're lending against an office stock. At that time, there might be an E or an F. And we said that will need to be upgraded. That will impact on cost and capex. And, you know, no one generally was that interested in hearing. It's not a particularly sexy topic. And that was a comment from someone that pitched to us recently for a sales mandate. And they said, look, we're just trying to come up with really creative ideas here to add value and things you can do to help repair this asset. And it's not sexy, but one of the most important things you can do right now is improve your, your EBC schedule because the sort of buyers that we look to sell to are going to look down that schedule. They're going to see the Ds and the Es, even the Cs, and say, well, it's not about what I can do with this asset. Owning it now is where I'm going to be in three and five years. If in three and five years, I'm going to have to spend hundreds of thousands of pounds to upgrade all these, then I'm going to take that cost off with a margin off what I'm willing to pay now. So it is a... It is a big focus, I think, this year and moving forwards, it will be a really important focus for investors. Therefore, it needs to be a focus for, for vendors. And I just think people haven't looked at it as intently as they should the last few years. Well, should we touch on the impact of that on resident commercial landlords, given the associated costs of meeting some of these requirements? Do we expect that it's going to lead to attrition in the industry? I think on residential, it might lead to increased liquidity. You've talked about buying portfolio flats in, in, in southwest London, for example. If you're buying off buy-to-let investors, you know, they've been net sellers, I think, every quarter but one since 2016, as it is due to, you know, tax changes and, and things. Financing market is going to force that even more. And now you've got EPCs, and I think those amateur landlords that make up 75, 80% of the market are facing the reality of even more expenditure. And it's just going to make them even less viable and they'll, they'll be forced to sell. You know, they're virtually forced sellers as it is in, in, in that buy-to-let space, I think, because they're looking at their mortgages at 4%, 5%, rather than 2 25 and realising not only can they not make any profit off that, but they're paying, paying the government tax on the loss. So that, that market will become more liquid and it will create opportunities in the commercial market. Because as, as I said before, I think there's people that are just not set up to deal with it. Can I ask a, a blunt question? When? Is there a period of time when you think this is really going to start to boil up? Or do you think we're just going to see a gradual process over the next year, two years, this becomes a reality? And I think the, the, the time is now. I don't think there's an inflection point. Right. I don't think we're going to hit a date where it's just going to come off a cliff. I think more and more people are coming more and more aware of this issue. And the more experienced investors in particular are taking note and are trying to adjust accordingly. But, you know, this time last year, 
it probably was not a major focus, and now it is. So I think I think you're going to see a, you know, a crescendo of focus uh, on on the issue over the next twelve to thirty six months in particular. On the flip side, how can developers protect their projects and avoid having to deal with receivers? Yeah, I appreciate that we're not everyone's favourite bunch. It's quite interesting sitting across, obviously, from a developer because normally people don't like to see us. So in terms of how you can avoid seeing me, you know, what we talked about previously is the importance of communication with your lender. A lender's job's there to lend money, you know, to get the coupon back and, and then get the loan repaid at the end. They don't want to own the asset. They want to spend years potentially doing work out on it. You know, I appreciate there are some sort of funds that will go in for a loan-to-own strategy, but that's not what the majority of the market is there to do. So, you know, communicate with your lender. Don't bury your head in the sand. I think being honest and straightforward is always helpful because I think that's appreciated. The people you are reporting to have someone else to report to and they need to be able to articulate, you know, what the problem is and what the solution is. And I think if you're coming up with lots of different ideas and you're not very straightforward or you're hiding away, you make the person that's trying to manage your loan, you're making their job harder. Making I think nervous. And making them nervous. You know, you, you're creating red and amber flags. And on that point, you know, don't overpromise and underdeliver. You know, we've been brought into situations just because for 12, 18 months, someone's been saying, I'm, I'm definitely going to do this. This is happening. I've got an investor. They're here. They're ready. They're buying out. They're going to do this. And then they don't. And then it goes quiet. And then three months, I've definitely found it. I've sold it. I've got it. And that can really frustrate a lender. We've taken appointments purely based off that frustration because they just can't see an outlet. I think if there's a, if there's a credible, viable business plan, a lot of lenders will look to support their customer. I've actually got an example, real world example of our own, where we picked up recently, as you already mentioned, David, three flats in Battersea that came via auction. It was a receivership sale. And it was probably the biggest legal pack I've ever seen. But actually for us, it, it gave us a huge amount of comfort. I mean, it was quite a complex uh, leasehold freehold structure. There was a whole ream of information communication between the receivership, uh, between the receivers and, and the managing agents for the building. And as I say, for us, it actually gave us comfort that there was all this information that we could go through and see if, if there were any pinch points or anything that we needed to sort of ask further questions on. But I, I know from discussions with the auctioneer that actually it turned a lot of people off. There was so much information there that a number of people didn't feel comfortable progressing, sent it through to their solicitors, their solicitors couldn't turn around to report in time. So actually my experience of buying an asset from a receiver has been a very positive one. Yeah, you know, I must say, I think that receiver has done a good job. I don't know who it was, but that is how we would approach it as well. I think that is, that is the right way to do things because the reality is, it, the reality is if you went light touch on the, on the DD and the pack that you gave out, people are going to ask more questions, create more uncertainty. You know, all those people that, as you say, fell away because they were scared off at the level of DD that was provided, they're the people that were most likely to time waste, um, to, to, to soak up resource, to you know, fail to complete, fail to exchange, fail to hit timescales, cause all manner of issues. You know, the transaction uncertainty with people that good DD puts off is high. You know, what our job is as receivers is to find you. You're the bar we want, someone that comes in, that can understand the structure, understand what's happening, you know, chew through the DD and say, this is me and this is what I'm paying and I'm done. That's our job is to find you, not all the people that are going to, you know, fall away because as soon as they do a little bit of digging, it gets a bit complicated and they don't want to transact. Hi, it's Alex from Real Developer. Just jumping in quickly for one minute to let you hear the rest of the success story and the start of the episode from Joshua Prince, Eastwood Developments. So using Land Insight, we were able to identify 
who owned the various access points to the site. One was a private road that was owned by two individual freeholders jointly, one of whom had passed away. So it was had its complexities. But eventually, using Land Insights and working our way through Google, we managed to get hold of the right people to agree uh, access over the road. And on the other side of the site was, was also a privately owned road that was owned by a corporate entity that was no longer operating. But we managed to get in touch with one of the beneficiaries of that business who had since moved over to another entity and we managed to work with them as well. So overall, the access issues were resolved and we were able to promote the site and then later sell it on to an institutional buyer. To start your own land success story with Landtech, head to land.tech today. And now back to the episode. David, one of the things that we discovered as real developer when we surveyed the existing accredited firms in December was that we asked them in terms of the land process, what would they like to see if we could do something to help enhance their process, what they're doing at the moment, acquiring sites, developing sites. And the thing that they categorically said, which I completely agree with as a former developer, is they wanted to see more information from the introducers, from the agent, when they're getting their site in terms of what is the situation? What am I dealing with? Where's the skeletons in the closet. I mean, this may sound naive, but why would people get put off by a, a greater pack of DD ahead of a potential purchase? In many ways, I don't know why they would be put off because it wouldn't put off me. I'd rather be well informed. Some of the stuff we've sold, we had comments from investors that bought off us that said, it's actually quite frustrating buying off you because we have to do so, you know, there is all this DD and we have to do a lot of work, but it means we can price more accurately. And if we can price more accurately, then frankly, we're probably going to pay more. So again, from my perspective, help people price more accurately, less transaction uncertainty, you may get better pricing as well. So no, I don't know why it puts someone off. Other than an example, maybe you gave that people try to turn around a legal report on a big DD pack in a, you know, a auction situation where you have less time, maybe that. But on a large scale land transaction that's done by private treaty, yeah, I'd worry if it put you off. So in summary, David, do you feel that we're in a buyer's market now? Are people successfully negotiating price reductions up front or coming back to the table and renegotiating existing terms? I think we're still having problems with bid-ask spread. So I still think there is, a, there is a detachment between vendor expectations as to what they want and buyer expectations as to what they're willing to pay. You know, sometimes that creates almost opportunity for us as receivers because there may be a price that a lender is willing to transact at, but the purchase market is willing to pay. You know, cash is king with what's happened in, in the finance markets. I think that we're going back to, it's not the GFC. I don't think we have to worry about it being anything that kind of scale, but certainly at the moment, cash is king. And therefore the ability for a buyer to transact decisively because they're, you know, they're well capitalized and they can afford to, you know, maybe refinance down the line or something like that. There will be opportunities to buy, I think, at good prices because I think vendors, especially those in bank-led processes where there's an administrator or a receiver or something like that, they will value the transaction certainty from someone that can say, here's a copy of my bank account. I have more than enough funds to buy this tomorrow. Here's the DD that I want to do, and then I want to buy it, and this is my price. So I think, you know, for those that are well-capitalized and decisive, that'll create opportunity. So probably more on, a, more on the side of a buyer's market, if you're that buyer. David, are you seeing any co geographical concentration? Offices and, I suppose, the resi dev land as well as a focus? In terms of what's coming across our desks, probably not. In terms of geographical concentration, some factors are a factor at play all over the country. You know, the cost of finance is, is, is expensive wherever you go. London might be a bit more resilient. 
because some of the underlying fundamentals in the residential market might look stronger. Rental growth in particular. So if you're an investor that's buying for a built rent portfolio or buying, you know, pepper potter schemes, but just because you can get several rental flats in one, then your investment is underpinned by really strong rental growth in, in London and the Southeast in particular, maybe less so further or far from London. But no, most of what we see at the moment is, is completely spread across the country. You know, we're close to the borders of Scotland. We're on the south coast of England. We're in West Mids and we're in East Langia. So, yeah. And just so those listening know and understand as well, your remit is the full for both the UK or England and Wales and Scotland? We can only do receivership in England, Wales and, and Northern Ireland. Yes, they have different yeah, regulations. So, so Scotland, okay. Scots law, they have to use administrators. So we'll normally support the lender in more of a strategic role and then okay. we'll work partner with an administrator to kind of overall provide roughly the same service. But yeah, we're, we're pan UK. So, you know, we've got people in appointment takers in London and then Bristol and Cardiff, but each of us takes appointments all over the country. Okay, understood. The first ever Real Developer Index came out in 2019 and we, well, the place we launched it was the... NARA conference, annual conference, Receivership Association, run by the fantastic Julian Healy, who's been a great supporter to Real Developer in the past. And I sat in the front row before I gave my little sponsorship piece. And I listened to the first presentation, which was probably the biggest impact that any talk has ever had on me in terms of just understanding the risk of development. And this is the thing that, you know, as a previous developer, this is why Real Developer started. It's a very complex space. There are huge risks. There is great uplift. But people don't talk about those that aren't successful in it. And this is why we, Real Developer, recognizes those that have got through those first few sites and come out the other end successful. What is the biggest reason you think for 2023 that sites, development sites specifically, so that third category, will end up in receivership? Inability to repay loans at expiry. Okay, so I think that'll come from people taking too long to get their planning or, or hit a sales rate or something like that, where they've taken out a one, two-year loan. With the anticipation they'll be sufficiently far down their development program to be able to refinance or, or, or sell and repay. And those options have fallen away this year. So they've not got far enough down their project or, or, or what have you, or just didn't anticipate that the cost of finance was going to be in 2023. I don't think anyone two years ago would have thought we had four, four and a half percent base rates this year, potentially. Um, I'm conscious they're sitting in a couple of hours, aren't they? But um, you know, most people are expecting the you know, base rate to go up again, quarter, half a point maybe. So I think that that would be one of the main reasons that residential development, some residential developments might might run into issues this year. Okay. And just to, far, uh, just to uh, finish us off, the quick fire round. So Had and I are both uh, heading through the developers, org- developers boardroom organization to MIPIM this year. Will you be out there? I don't do MIPIM. You don't do MIPIM. Okay. I love the idea of MIPIM. Right. And I can remember as a young trainee surveyor, always, you know, oh, get the invite to MIPIM. That's where we want to be. I don't think it's a natural place for a receiver to be. I appreciate and maybe some do go, but in terms of who's there and, and what they're doing, whilst there may be people that are interested to speak to us in terms of what we can, you know, sell, what we're appointed on. From a business development point of view, I don't think it, there's a huge draw. I think we will look to Expo Real, which is Munich, a lot less Glamorous, maybe. It's not on La Quesette, a little less sunny. More beers than rosé. More beers than rosé. But it's very lender-focused. You know, it's a, full of every finance and, and, and lending company you can, you can imagine. So more natural space for us, I think. Okay. And just to change subject a little bit, can you give us a synopsis of your favorite deal of your career, respecting, obviously, how some of these deals come about? 
Yeah, favourite deal, Trent Park Campus in North London. Not just because it was 10 minutes from where I lived, so it was very easy to do site inspections, but it was, a, it was a, an interesting example of how it arrived into receivership. So it was a university campus that I think they tried to, tried to expand or do something on site and didn't win their planning with the local authority, moved elsewhere. The owner at that point went to sell the property, sold it to a slightly obscure individual from abroad because the restrictions had been placed on it from a planning perspective. And the whole thing started to fall to rack and ruin. You know, he had a grade two listed mansion house. It's where Mr. Sassoon used to entertain Churchill and all kinds of dignitaries have been there. He had a fascinating history. Um, and then we came in because you know, the whole thing had really fallen apart. And the guy that bought it never had any real plan for it. He didn't know what he was doing, unfortunately, quite sadly, for the people that live there or in, in, in the area. And we came in took control, you know, redid all the security so that, you know, all those local residents that have been walking their dogs across the fields for the last 50 years are no longer getting chased by, you know, security guards with six Alsatians and things like that. So, you know, great example of community engagement. There's a huge amount of community engagement of that. We met the MP, head of the council, head of regen, head of development. We worked collaboratively with them to produce a planning statement, which said, okay, we appreciate that the only way we're going to save the historic buildings is to allow someone to get some use out of the site with some value, which we know is residential. Mm. Put it in the less sensitive areas, um, you know, build on the old car parks, knock down the student halls of accommodation and put the flats there, low rise. And then we were able to get a really strong competitive bidding process with, with volume house builders. Got our client repaid in full, which is obviously always nice. And again, still living locally, I get to see Barclay Homes and, and the beautiful houses they put there since. And it's just the whole project has just been really fascinating to see from embryonic stage through to delivery of homes for people. Well, I remember seeing the photographs of that site. It was a fantastic scheme that you eventually were able to, uh, to help produce as well. Final question, appreciating that your core relationship is with your lenders who appoint you. And obviously, we do have lenders that listen to this call and they should Certainly connect with you on LinkedIn, David Eden, Cushman and Wakefield. But we obviously have a core developer audience of real developers and other SMEs. How do they build a relationship with someone like yourself and a receivership team at someone like Cushman and Wakefield? It's a good question. I appreciate it can be tricky having, you know, trying to build those relationships with people you know are going to be busy. And it's that cold calling piece, which is, all, which is always hard. I think LinkedIn is always a good starting point. You know, I do try to, to use our LinkedIn profiles as a platform for engagement, which is not just me with, with my target clients, but it's people with the opportunity to come talk to me and, and the stuff we're working on as well. So, you know, monitor the LinkedIn profiles, see what we're working on and what we're doing. And, you know, always happy to take an approach or call an email, have a conversation. You know, I don't think there's any reason to be closed off to these things, but the more you can make it relevant, i.e. a deal that's yeah. going at the moment or a you project. Know, I, I'm working on something. I put it on, on LinkedIn. Someone says, we've just done something around the corner or really interested for this reason. And then you have a conversation. And then once, once those conversations start flowing, then that's when you build a relationship, isn't it? Especially if you get to transact together. I think we're going to have to get LinkedIn to sponsor this podcast because <laughs> this is the, about the fifth time they've been mentioned in the last uh, few conversations. So no, I appreciate it. Well, David, I'm very grateful to our mutual friend, Julian Healy, for the introduction, because I think you take a very easy to follow view of a complicated space, appreciating, you know, obviously it's uh, not an ideal one for some people, but we have to recognize it is what it is. And this year is going to be a busy one for you, I'm sure, and your colleagues. Fad, thank you very much for your co-hosting. And David, thank you for joining us. Hi, everyone. It's your host again, Alex Harrington-Griffin. Just want to say thank you very much for joining us for this episode. And of course, to our amazing guests, 
Make sure to follow Real Developer on LinkedIn for all the latest SME developer news, podcasts, and quarterly land requirements from our accredited developers. And of course, if you're an experienced SME developer and ready to grow your land connections and opportunities, head to realdeveloper.co.uk to take our three-minute real check test and see how you match up against the existing accredited developers. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your peers and hit that subscribe button. We'll see you next time for more Real Developer Conversation.